Satan's kingdom and brought into your heavenly kingdom of light. You are so gracious and wonderful. And we are here to declare our love to and for you, to worship you, because you and you alone are worthy. I thank you that we are brothers and sisters in the Lord and that we have a bond that will last for eternity. I thank you also that we have freedom to worship you in this nation still, that we can come together without fear of our lives. Help us to worship you. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world that are not in such a free country, and we ask that you would strengthen and guide. May they realize that you are God, that Jesus Christ intercedes and that the Holy Spirit strengthens and that you will never forsake anyone, even through the trials and perhaps loss of life. Please refresh minds and hearts and souls and remind those who are in danger that eternity of glory waits for them. We also ask that you would use this service today and preachers around the world to be used of you to bring more people into your kingdom for your glory. Help us to worship you today, O oh Father in heaven, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Let's take our hymn books and let's stand together and turn to number 82, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. These next three songs are focused on the Lord's sovereignty, his guidance, his protection, his faithfulness. And so let's start with singing number 82.
just a moment because when I talk, um, sometimes I'm not sure how to end that part. So if you have a worship folder, go ahead and open it up. I put Psalm 23 there. Our next hymn that Blake will be leading us is the Lord's My Shepherd I Shall Not Want. That's hymn 79. So you go ahead and turn in your hymn book to 79. So we're going to sing the scripture and he'll lead us through that and help us with that. But I also wanted to take a moment to look at the scripture and to pray. So um, n- notice it first and, and then I'll pray this scripture and then I want us to read it together. I put it in the New King James just so that it's a little closer to King James, which many of you have memorized. And so this will be a little bit closer when we try to read this publicly together. But I just want you to note a couple things. I'll pray and we'll read this together and then Blake will lead us to sing it. Note here, it looks to God here as we're using this analogy of shepherd, of course, rings a bell where we've been in John chapter 10, that Jesus indeed is this great shepherd. Notice the things that the shepherd does. He causes me to lie down, to, uh, he leads me by still waters. He restores me. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. And why would he do this? For a display of his own glory. That is for his namesake. And note this, that anyone that might be going through great trouble or difficulty, here's this beautiful phraseology, though I, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And many of you have been there, or you certainly will at some point in time. Here is the promise that you don't have to fear evil. Why? Because he is with you. Jesus Christ promised that he'll be with you until the end of the age. Your rod and staff, the very implements that a shepherd would have, both to pull along and to provide correction, not punishment, but correction, so that you will continue in the path of righteousness. Christ is constantly doing this, and here, even in the midst of great evil, you have great blessing and a bounty of joy, a table as it's, uh, as it's illustrated here before the enemies. Anointing here is uh, the, the blessedness received through Christ so much that it overflows the imagery of a cup of blessing. We're going to talk today about the cup of wrath, but there's also a cup of blessing. Note here, this is the cup of blessing. Of what? Goodness and mercy. Goodness and mercy for those to whom the Lord is their shepherd all the days of your life. And in the end, you will dwell with him forever and ever. Amen. What a great, what a great uh, psalm for us to think about, to sing. But let me pray about this for us today as we begin, and then we'll sing it together. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ, indeed, for you to send the Son to this earth, to walk among us, to die on behalf of our sins, and beyond that, to not just to leave us as unguided and undirected, but indeed Jesus Christ, our Lord, our shepherd, who would indeed care for us in whatever circumstance we might find ourselves in. 
I pray for myself, I pray for your people around the world this very Lord's Day. May all of us look indeed to Christ. For those of our brothers and sisters that may be facing the valley of the shadow of death, whether it is a personal injury or illness or the terrorists about them, Father, I pray that we would all not fear what men can do to us. Our trust would be solely in you, that indeed you are with us. And even those evil things done about us or the evil that is in the world, all of those will function purposely for our good and your glory. May indeed even those things done against us result in comfort, knowing that you have a purpose in all. And may we enjoy the delights and bounty that you have given to us, even in an evil day, that we can smile and delight in great joy and fellowship and the love that we have indeed in Jesus Christ. May we be encouraged by the goodness and mercy granted to us day after day because it is new day after day and your cup of blessing for those that are in Christ never runs dry but beyond that overflows and I pray it would overflow in our life and that our focus would be dwelling with you forever and ever. Amen. Let's stand again together and turn to number 79 and sing this beautiful psalm and him, the Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want.
going to have another psalm reading this morning. Today we'll also be reading from Psalm 69, which can be found in your pew Bibles on page 482. Again, that's page 482 in your pew Bibles. Psalm 69 is an imprecatory psalm. Last year, uh, Wayne did a series of Bible studies from the Psalms and dealt with Psalm 109, which is another imprecatory psalm, and we had a discussion of those psalms at, at that time. So I'm not going to repeat that, but I will bring a few points <laughs> up that are relevant to the imprecatory psalms in general. In the imprecatory psalms, the author calls for God to bring misfortune and disaster upon his enemies. These psalms are an embarrassment to many Christians who see in them tension with Jesus' ten, uh, teaching on love of enemies. Uh, in modern Anglican prayer books, the Anglican Church uses the Book of Common Prayer, the uh, imprecatory psalms are bracketed with the view that they would not be read in public worship. I think that that's a mistake, <laughs> that it indicates the influence of liberalism upon that communion. It's important to recall the theological principles that underlie such psalms. These include, one, the principle that vengeance belongs to God that excludes personal retaliation and necessitates appeal to God to punish the wicked. Two, the principle that God's righteousness demands judgment on the wicked. Three, the principle that God's covenant love for the people of God necessitates intervention on their part. And four, the principle of prayer that believers trust God with all their thoughts and desires. John MacArthur says of this psalm in particular, this psalm is a prayer of desperation. David realizes that because he's hated by others, he may shortly be killed. Though he begs for rescue and calls down curses on his enemies, he concludes the psalm with a high note of praise, with inferences concerning the coming messianic kingdom when all enemies of God's people are dealt with swiftly and severely. Much of this psalm was applied to Christ by the New Testament writers, which is, again, another reason why I believe it is entirely invalid to dismiss these psalms. So the New Testament writers clearly did not do so. This psalm expresses the feelings of any believer who's being horribly ridiculed, but it uniquely refers to Christ. And it's, the psalm is regarded as the psalm which speaks most of the sufferings of Christ apart from Psalm 22. So let us hear the word of the Lord, Psalm 69. To the choir master, according to the lilies of David, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number, and the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, 
those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. O oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach that dishonor has covered my face. I've become a stranger to my brothers and alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I'm the talk of those who sit in the gate and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God. In the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul, redeem me, ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation, let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment, may they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living, let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain, let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. All seeing God, we confess our sinful response to the trials and discomforts of our lives. While in the depths of woe, we've resented our need for you and rarely lifted our eyes to you, the only one who can bring us true help. Instead, we've consistently directed our gaze to earthly things that falsely promise escape and comfort. We are found completely guilty in your holy sight. Yet as we continually stray from your love and your law, 
you look upon our helpless state and lead us to the cross. We ask you to do this now, Father. Thank you that Jesus looked perfectly to you in every single situation of his life, trusting you completely in all things. We're deeply grateful that Jesus never stopped trusting you, even when you did not allow the cup of condemnation that we deserve to pass from him. Jesus had to be lifted up on the cross because of our unwillingness to lift our eyes to you. Yet Christ's life and death on our behalf is the very comfort to which we are habitually so unwilling to look. Forgive us, Father, for a rejection of this beautiful gospel story into which you've invited us. Loving God, soften our hearts to delight in your love for us. Change us into sons and daughters who are so enraptured with the story of the gospel that we run to our beautiful Savior as we experience suffering in our lives. Help us to trust you as you call us into journeys that we do not want to take, knowing that you will never leave us or forsake us. Give us strength to believe that from your own fullness you'll repay all that you take from us. Lift our eyes afresh to the cross from whence our help comes, the place where our lives were saved by Jesus' death. Thank you that we can meet freely here together. Continue with us now on the preaching of the word and sanctify us in the truth. Here is for Jesus' sake, in his name, amen. to Caroline and Ethan on up to sing this hymn for us. And we would like for you, if we can remember, you can stay seated, but join them on verse 4, 88, Abide with me. Jesus said, I am the true vine. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Caroline told me this is one of Gordon's favorite hymns, and she wanted to sing it 
in honor of Christ in you, the hope of glory, and I hope it will be a glorious hymn for all of us as well as we think of our union with Christ and abiding with him. Bless each of you as you abide in Christ. What a great hymn. What a great scripture. What a great thought. Let's look in his word in John chapter 18 this morning. John chapter 18. 
We're going to continue the really the third part of this introductory narrative to Jesus's betrayal. I've called it the Victor's Cup, and this is just part three because I wasn't sure how long it would take me to get through it. Now, hopefully, it'll be just three parts. We'll move on. <coughs> great truth, hard to move from. If you haven't been with us, this we're going through the Gospel of John. Here we've arrived at chapter 18, which introduces to really the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. Of course, it's going to follow with his death and the triumphant resurrection. You're going to find a parallel in the other Gospels, most notably Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22. It kind of rounds out what's going on here. Each author has a slight different angle that he puts on it. John's point, as we've mentioned before, is primarily to focus on the divinity of Christ. We've looked at the power of Christ as demonstrated in this dark time. All that would transpire on this night has been known beforehand by Christ because it is the Father's will. It has been predetermined. No, he doesn't force Judas to betray. That is Judas's heart. That's what he wants to do. This mob of men that show up to arrest Jesus, this is indeed their desire. The crowd that cries out, crucify him, that is their heart's desire. But God is ultimately in control of all things, including this very night. Notice verse 4 in our text of chapter 18, Jesus knew beforehand. He knew because he purposed all of this to happen. He purposed this so that he would save many people from their sin. We've considered that this fact in the midst of the chaos and confusion, if you will, that's going on here. Look to Jesus in the midst of this clamoring crowd and the disciples too as they're drawn together and a bit confused. Jesus knows exactly what's going on. He is walking calmly navigating through this very storm. And in the midst of it, kind of where we ended off last week, and then we want to follow up on, he protects those very disciples. He protects them from harm by this crowd that gathers together. He doesn't allow his disciples to be swept up in this arrest of Jesus, in this frenzy, this mob reaction, if you will. There was, as I mentioned, if you weren't with us, this is probably about, imagine, uh, somewhere around a thousand people here to grab just one man. Jesus then has them, the officials among them, identify two times who they are here to arrest. And they mention Jesus of Nazareth, verse 5 and verse 7. He does this in order to give his disciples a way of escape because they are not part of this arrest order. I said last week that the disciples will suffer arrest 
and martyrdom as well. But they are not ready right now. That's what we actually know. Jesus must protect them, notice verse 9, so that none would be lost. What, what does he mean? None would be arrested and martyred? No, they're going to be arrested. They're going to be martyred. He doesn't want them to be lost spiritually. He knows that they aren't ready right now to, in, to be arrested and to be tortured, tried, and executed. He's not talking about their physical loss. He is talking about their spiritual loss. In our minds, physical loss is of the greatest uh, order, but it compares nothing to eternity, right? Compares nothing to spiritual loss. That is what is most important, and no one cares. No one this morning cares. Everyone cares about physical loss, and I'm not minimizing. I think that's important, but do you feel the weight and the gravity of spiritual loss? I can assure you there is one person who cares, one person who knows. His name is Jesus Christ. Do you know him? He demonstrates that here in protecting his own disciples. Isaac and I were talking about it afterwards, so I'll have to give you credit for it, and I think you're right. He was wondering why in the world they weren't ready now. Well, we know for sure they weren't ready. But if you want to know why, ask Isaac. He'll tell you later. No, I'll tell you. <laughs> he said, and I thought this is a good, good insight here, is that, of course, this is prior to the resurrection. And if you follow the Gospels along, you'll notice these cowards become very courageous after the resurrection the post-resurrection of Christ and his appearance to them over the next 40 days. That's one thing. And certainly also a unique power that Christ had promised to give the disciples the Holy Spirit. And he hadn't given it to them yet. You're going to find that in the book of Acts. And when he does, this very coward here, Peter, stands up and preaches the gospel to the very people who killed Jesus right there. And thousands come to Christ at Pentecost. One thing we know, though, and that's, I think that should enter in for sure. This is part of what Christ would do. Grant the unique power of the Holy Spirit and also this assurance of Christ's resurrection is because he lives that indeed we will as well. But one thing we know for sure, back to our text in chapter 18, we know this for sure. They weren't ready right now. Okay? Exactly why? Fine. But they weren't ready now. So in accordance to Jesus is divine sovereign control over everything. He has the power then, right then, to protect them from being arrested. They weren't spiritually fit at this time. They would have failed. The disciples think they're ready, though. If you remember Thomas in chapter 11, I think it was, they were going to go up to Bethany near outside of Jerusalem, and they knew that Jesus, they wanted to kill Jesus, and Thomas responds at, to Jesus and says, you know, the circumstance you're going to get us into, but his response to that is, let us die with him. So they thought they were ready to die. Christ demonstrates right now that they, that they aren't. It's a good confession 
to say, I'm going to follow Christ. I'm going to pick up my cross. Instrument of death, if you will, right? Not a piece of jewelry. Not a decoration. But a, but a death instrument. I'm going to pick it up and follow him. But Christ knows that they're not ready to follow him unto death. But they will be. They think they're ready. And here we have the final scene that I want to note to you. Really, we'll read it in context, but verse 10 till uh, 11 here. What you're going to see is rather than looking to Christ, who has already demonstrated his power and his protection of them, the disciples, most noted here, Peter, comes up with their own plan to resolve this whole crisis and chaos and this situation that they're in. Peter's plan isn't going to help. In fact, it will hinder. And without the sovereign control of Jesus Christ, it could have. But it won't because, again, he is Lord. He is Lord of all. Even Peter and his misguided plan. Let's read it in its context, though. We'll just begin at verse 1 through verse 11. John chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, that is, the words that he had taught the disciples, chapter 13 up till now, and his prayer, then he went out with the disciples across a brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who had betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers and the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with them with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. And so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you have given me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Let us pray. Father, we are thankful that Jesus Christ drank this cup. And it is because of that we can stand before you and call you Father. We are thankful for the forgiveness of sin that we have in Jesus Christ. I do also pray that we would learn to truly confess 
Jesus Christ is Lord, not just with our lips, but with our life, with our actions, our attitudes, and our affections. May we do so not through our own strength, but the strength that you provide through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, mediated through your word, which is true. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our focus now is going to be verse 10 here. It provides this account of Peter's response to the matter at hand. Now, Peter is singled out here. And if you've read much of the Gospels, yes, he can seem to be an impetuous type of person. But he's decisive. He's decisive in his actions. And I would argue that his actions aren't really um, um, something arbitrary and unique. It it is um, really consistent with how the others felt most of the time. He just actually took action. They, They wanted to. So he's not out of step with all of those that are around him. He's just making the decisive one. This is the difficult situation that they are in. But the greater the difficulty, the greater faith in Christ is required. Recognizing the gravity of this situation that they're in, Peter's best intention, and I'll give him that, is to try to help. I mean, after all, Jesus is about to be arrested. There is a mob of men. It's delineated here, these band of soldiers. That's at least 600, some officers, chief priests, Pharisees, and no doubt a crowd of spectators all coming about with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Large group. Peter's going to help, and so notice verse 10, the help that he attempts to do. He, he has a weapon on him, a weapon to defend himself. They're out in the countryside often, and so rightfully so, he has a weapon to protect himself, but he draws it and advances. He advances on a key servant, Nearby, And I'm sure you've heard this described before. I mean, the idea wasn't he reached over just to nick him a little bit and take a slice off his ear. No doubt he was trying to execute him. And the quick ducking man was able to get out of the way, but still lost part of his head, his ear. Peter did what the others actually wanted to do, I'd argue. He had great courage, conviction. He had great zeal. We can say that about him. But his zeal was not tempered with knowledge. And this is a problem that is applicable to all of us from time to time, isn't not? We need to temper. We need to have zeal, courage, conviction, these kinds of things. But always temper it with the wisdom of God and be directed by the words of Christ. Otherwise, taking things matters in your own hand is just a work of the flesh. It isn't a work of the Spirit. Turn to Matthew chapter 16. We'll look at this 
background for this event. Peter already knew what was going to unfold this very night. He already knew it because Jesus had already told him what was going to happen. Just as Jesus has already told us what is going to happen, it is found in his word. And here it's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 16. And let's just jump down to verse 13 because as a good teacher, Jesus puts this in a context in which they can remember. He's going to teach them something about this very night of betrayal, but he wants to have them have it seated in recognizing who this is that is speaking and who this one is that is going to be betrayed and arrested. Well, when he comes, he asks his disciples, verse 13, they come to Caesarea, Philippi. He says, well... Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? By the way, Son of Man is a divine title. So he's not diminishing himself in any way. He's saying, I'm God incarnate. What's everybody else think? Think of it that way. Well, the response then, some say, verse 14, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Those are great characters, if you will, but they're not great enough. And so Jesus turns back to the disciples and says, well, but who do you say that I am? Jesus has already declared that he is God. And he asks them, okay, they say I'm good, but who do you say I am? And here is the response. And Peter, again, I would argue he's speaking on behalf of the other disciples. But he's the one that steps up and speaks. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's his phraseology, again, recognizing that Jesus is the Messiah. That is, he is the deliverer. He is the Savior. He is the victor of it all. And beyond that, he is God incarnate. That's the phraseology, the son of the living God. So he's the Messiah, he's the deliverer, he's the victor, he's God incarnate. This is true. And Jesus then responds to him, says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. This is a, he confirms that very statement that he makes about Jesus being God and Lord. And then he, then he uh, tells them how this revelation came about. It doesn't come about by flesh and blood, but my Father who is in heaven. What a great statement. This isn't Peter just trying to figure out, oh, well, look at all the stuff that you're doing. Look at all these facts that would line up, and they do line up, and they should line up, and they will line up. However, this, it is beyond that, beyond the facts that the faith comes about through the supernatural re revelation of God, the gifting of God of his people to Christ, and the dynamic spiritual work of regeneration where that true confession from the heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, he blessed them. And then he gives them a bit of a plan. He says, well, 
I tell you, Peter, on this rock, this confession that he makes, I am going to build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Can I tell you this morning that Jesus Christ is about building his church and there's not a single Taliban in Afghanistan that can stop it. The gates of hell are not going to stop the king and his kingdom, Gordon, right? His kingdom is forever, and Jesus Christ is Lord. And those that are in rebellion against him and demonstrated only do so in a temporal manner because at any moment the king is coming. And he will crush his enemies under his feet. And here's the question. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord? Or do you just think he's a good man, a prophet, a preacher, somebody to emulate? Or is he indeed Lord? Is he God incarnate? This is Christ's statement. He is going to build his church. Now, would he use means to accomplish that? Yes, one of them is standing before him, his disciple Peter. But ultimately, the point is, he's going to do it. You don't have to come up with your own plans on how to build Christ's church. He can do it just fine. Obey his word. Learn from him. Follow him. Christ is the one who will accomplish, and it will be accomplished. It will not fail. He goes on and tells the authority. Then he gives them. This is what is meant by the keys of the kingdom, verse 19, and following. You know, the keys of the kingdom. He is given great authority to be able to preach the gospel, and that's what we do. This is how people will go into the kingdom. And we have the authority on Christ's word to, as God's people, to indicate whether their confession of Christ indeed is Lord. And upon that profession of faith, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Authority within the church to declare those that would be outside of the church who are not of us because they never were part of us means to do that through his word. At this point, he tells them, well, look, don't make it publicly. That's verse 20. Hold it down because, and I think the reason at this point was he wasn't ready to be betrayed, to be arrested, to be crucified. That will come, but not right at this moment. But he wants to instruct them that he is indeed the Christ. But he does tell them what's going to happen, not right at this moment, but what will happen, verse 21. And this is where I wanted to get to, but I had to root it in the authority of Christ and his statement that he is going to build his church. A thousand men standing against him on that dark night is not going to stop Christ. All of hell could not stop Christ. So he begins to show them what's going to happen. I'll tell you what's going to happen on that Thursday night, verse 21. He said he must go to Jerusalem. He has to suffer many things from whom? Oh, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. You know, the group that was leading that crowd and got them some protection. The 600 soldiers. But it was these chiefs and priests and scribes. 
Then he says, I'm going to be killed. And the glorious victory is thinking, I'm going to rise again on the third day. At this point, we're on the other side of history. We know this happened. But imagine where they're at. But nevertheless, who is saying this? This is God incarnate. This is the Messiah. This is the deliverer. This is the Savior. How is he going to deliver? How is he going to save? Well, he says it right here. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to die. And then I'm going to rise again. Peter's response, verse 22, he began to rebuke him. Well, hindsight is twenty twenty. I suppose he wished he had this text at the time. But I can understand this. This doesn't sound right. He rebukes him and says, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. He's demonstrating uh, his love for Christ. He doesn't want Christ to suffer, right? He's going to do anything to fight for Christ. He's got a lot of zeal, but no knowledge. He's misguided. And in fact, rebukes Jesus. And Jesus' words are very strong to him in verse 22. Get behind me, Satan. Anything that is in accord with Christ's purpose, Christ's plan, is of the devil. That's the point. He wasn't saying he was possessed by the devil. This is the demonic words, if you will. The words of Satan. He would not affirm what Christ plans where Christ is Lord. He says, you're a hindrance to me. And here's the phraseology that might help describe what Peter is again doing on this Thursday night after he's already been explained and warned. He says, you are, verse 22, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See? From his perspective, he was going to help Christ out. Christ had already said what he was going to do. And then to do it in the opposite way doesn't help. It actually hinders. Christ has promised to build his church. All of hell cannot prevail against it. He will employ these very disciples to do his will, to proclaim the gospel, to call for repentance and faith. But the gospel isn't of their own doing. They're called to conform what Christ called them to do. In the making of the other disciples, it isn't by the sword. It is by sacrifice. It is about simply preaching the word and calling people to follow Christ. It is explaining who Christ is and say, look at him. And through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, through this sanctifying truth, the very word of God, faith will come by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. Not by some sort of manipulative light show and dramatic theater and music 
pulsating through your body. Just the simple words of Christ. Look to him. He will build his church. And today the focus is, I can see an immediate application in our focus on the church, which in many places sadly has become a religious Disney world. The church is a holy sanctuary. It is a place for God's people to come, to worship Christ. Oh, others can be invited in to see and hear of Christ. And you should expect, as I do, and I tell people, I'm not trying to get rid of people, but you know, when they come and say, well, you're going to see, hear of Christ and see Christ's people. That's it. I mean, if anything else is there, well, that's fine. But, but, but to come to the show, no. No, I no desire to put on the show. God's people are to come together and devote themselves to Christ's teaching, which the apostles taught, to fellowship with one another, to take holy communion of Christ and think about the gospel. And certainly to pray. These are the essential elements of the church. Well, Peter took matters in his own hands that night. He had been forewarned of this, already told what was going to happen, and yet in his flesh he responds in a way that contradicts what Jesus intends to do. And I'll just add here, before I move on, and, and just say that, listen, um, he's certainly resisting the powers that be, and there may be appropriate times to do so. I can think of the three Hebrew children in Daniel 3 who were told to worship another object, or some object, if you will. And their response was, we're not going to do it. Because the God we serve can deliver us. That imagery is there of the Messiah. See how they fit together? God can save. God can deliver. And if he wants, their, their idea here to um, Nebuchadnezzar was, if God wants to relieve us from this physical harm, so be it. If not, we will go through it because he certainly can. In this case, we know that he did. Later on in chapter 6, under another official, Daniel was set up by some lower magistrates who knew that, you know, if they restricted Daniel's ability to pray to God, they might have grounds to arrest him. Now, nobody thinks that strategically about stopping worship of God, do they? Well, that was back then. In any case, they came up with this way that um, it would be illegal, basically, for him to pray. And what does Daniel do in Daniel chapter 6? Well, he does what he always does. Opens his windows wide open. He's not hiding anywhere. And he's praying. And he's trusting God. It did cost him, no doubt. But God, in this case, physically rescued him, which God certainly can do. 
And you know what? If he didn't, it would be fine as well. Because you know why? He will rescue him ultimately spiritually. So there are times to resist. But in the resistance, we don't do so through violent means grabbing the sword. If you wonder why did he have the sword to begin with, it's legitimate and fine to protect yourself from evil as well they should, particularly in that land. They didn't have as good a security as we might around here. That's perfectly fine. But he was going to engage in warfare here and he didn't have the authority to do so. His charge was to sacrifice not engage in a physical battle with the powers that be. So Jesus tells him to to put his sword back into his sheath. If you're still in Matthew chapter 16, you can flip over to the parallel account in now in 26 of Matthew. Matthew 26, it gives us a further explanation of this little phrase of Jesus's rebuke to Peter, telling him to put his sword away. Matthew explains a greater detail here, beginning 26 and verse 51. It says that one of those who are with Jesus, and we know who it is, is identified, but here, one with Jesus, again, I say because they all wanted to fight here. He drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Verse 52 of Matthew 26. And Jesus said, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. The idea is he's talking about, hey, this is capital punishment. If you engage in this kind of activity, it's going to put you in opposition to the powers that have been put in place and capital punishment would be affected against you. You're not ready for it. And Christ is protecting him. Christ, who taught him that that is the purpose of this very hour for Christ to sacrifice, not to you to engage here actively in uh, in, in a um, in protecting him in this way, attempting to. Verse 53, he explains why. Remember, Peter's already confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? And so he says, don't you think I can appeal, verse 53, to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? All right, there's about... 600 to 1,000 soldiers there, professionals. And then, you know, maybe four, 500 other folks thereby. And Christ's terminology here in verse 53, he says, can I send more than 12 legions of angels? Now, to many of us, when we think of angels, we Think of the caricatures painted in pictures, perhaps, of some effeminate guy with a harp on a cloud. Wrong image. Think of warrior with a sword and very fierce and very powerful. That would be a better image. Can I tell you what one angel did in Second Kings 19? You can go look it up. 
One, a single angel in a single night killed 185,000 men. You know why just, you know why 185? Because that's all was there. <laughs> Jesus says, I'm going to call 12 legions. A legion in the Roman army would have been maybe 6,000. Not 600, 6,000. It wasn't a band, it was a legion. And I can do 12 times that. 72,000. Do you think they would have any trouble executing the entire world? I think that's the point. Jesus is making. I am God. I can handle this, he is saying. The scriptures need to be fulfilled, and that's what's essential, verse 54 of Matthew 26. And Jesus tells the crowd, interesting, since I'm here, I'll just read it. Have you come out? As against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me, day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you didn't seize me? Why didn't they get him in the temple when he was all alone? Why didn't he stop him when he overturned the tables in the temple twice? You know why? Because he's Lord. That's why. All of this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets that that might be fulfilled. Well, Jesus fixes the problem, if you will, this problem that Peter got himself into because he acted out of zeal without knowledge, ignorance, lack of faith, whatever, just dumb, took actions in his own hand instead of trusting Christ. And here is, is I think, one of the most beautiful things. You can find it in Luke 22. I'll just read it for you. Jesus, even in this predicament, reaches out and touches the ear of Malchus, and it's instantly healed. You've never been to a faith healing show where they cut off somebody's ear, and then they reached over and touched that spot. And the ear was back with no scar, nothing. It's all perfect and whole. Don't blaspheme Jesus' miracles. This is a unique thing that Jesus does here. And really, one of the, other than the resurrection, obviously, which is big, but here's a little minor thing that happens in a quasi-public place, all of those can see it. They knew what Peter did. They knew then Peter would have been guilty. Peter would have been charged. And if Peter would be guilty and charged because he just cut off somebody's ear, you know they had the authority now to arrest Jesus. Jesus fixes it right on the spot, and they have no more charge against him. The slate is clear. What are they going to charge him for? Wanting to chop his head off? Okay, well, that's not enough. No damage. Perfectly whole. In this very miracle, Jesus provides what we would call common grace to that uh, servant, but ultimately specific grace to his servant, Peter. 
who will now be safe again, once again. Jesus, even in his bad direction and problem, Jesus turns around and fixes that uh, and resolves the whole situation. Because his greater purpose is that he wouldn't lose Peter. Not that he necessarily needs Peter, but Peter was given to him by the Father. And he wasn't going to lose anyone. And if you've been given to Christ by the Father, he's not going to lose you, even if you mess up, even if you do dumb things. Well, I need to finish this up, and I will. I just want to talk about one more thing. Back to our text in verse 11. With the way John pictures it here, he just says, Jesus says, put, put away your sword. Put it back in your, put your gun back in your holster. Here's why. Because in God's plan, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? He, he missed the whole point of what was going on that night. This cup here, as we've alluded to earlier when we read Psalm 23, two great analogies in Scripture about a cup. There is a cup of blessing, right? And that, that imagery of a cup of blessing. And, and for those that Christ is their shepherd, that, that cup, cup overflows in great blessing. It is the cup that Jesus would drink with them in what we now call the communion of Christ, it is a cup of blessing. This cup here, though, that he's talking about is the cup of judgment, the Father's cup, as he's mentioned here. And it is by God's divine will that he would indeed drink this cup. They were familiar with this cup, the cup of wrath, and what he was referring to, this cup of, in this case, it would be lying, betrayal, um, torture. It would be um, secrecy, hypocrisy. It would be great suffering. It would be great, a great and painful death. The psalmist in Psalms, I'll give you a few scriptures, Psalm 75, 8. There's a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours it out. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. He's talking about the cup of wrath. A cup of judgment. A cup in which, in that sense, all the wicked of the earth are going to drink it and drink it dry. It is a cup of judgment. Jerusalem would need to drink from this cup of wrath. It was illustrated in the conquering of the foreign powers because of their idolatry and disobedience to God as a nation. Isaiah pleads to them in Isaiah 51, wake yourselves, wake yourselves, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord of the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, a cup of staggering. All nations, Opposed to God, those 
Gentile nations will also drink from the cup of God's wrath. Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 25 says, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Take from my hand this cup of wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. This cup of wrath is a cup of judgment. Judah is warned of the destruction of Israel, portrayed as her sister, who drank that cup in Ezekiel 23. It's deep and large. You'll be laughed at and held in derision, for it contains much. You will be filled with sorrow, a cup of horror, desolation, the cup from your sister Samaria. Those who are anti-Christ will drink from this cup of wrath. John records in the book of Revelation of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb, Revelation 14.10. Those nations in rebellion against God, described as Babylon the Great, the great city, Revelation 16, split in parts. The nations fell, and God made her drink, drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. This is the cup that's in view. Now, one of the other gospel writers talked about this event as something tremendously horrible. The prophets knew. They explained it. It is a cup of great judgment. And Christ would pray on this night, as Matthew, Mark, and Luke both record, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will will be done. He prays in Mark, Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And in Luke, he says essentially the same thing and says, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This was not taken lightly. This is the cup of wrath of Almighty God. It is a righteous vengeance against all that is evil. And you want what is evil to be taken care of, don't you? We all do. I was watching some little program, little clip of a courtroom, and had a dad walk up at the sentencing of a serial murderer. The man that committed the murders was behind him at a table, I don't know, 15, 20 feet or more, sitting. You know how they do? He's up at some lectern talking to the court because he's able to make a final word before the sentencing of this guilty person is passed. It was the dad of one of the daughters who had been 
abused and mutilated and destroyed. He's about my age, a little bigger man, heavy set, certainly not athletic at all. And he began to talk about how this man had taken away the joy of his life and his beautiful daughter. And he looked at him at one point, and the man smirked. That was the wrong move. I don't know how, and I had, I had to rewind the video. I have no idea how this happened. But this older guy, not physically fit, leaning over this lectern, immediately flew like Superman. His body was parallel to the ground. I kid you not. That table that was between him and them, it, had, it, had no, it was no barrier. Because he was above it and flying in the air with his arms out like this to choke that guy's neck. And if it weren't for a crowd of people that batted him down and pushed him aside and held on to him for quite some time, I think he would have accomplished his mission. I can empathize with that and so everyone can. That, that judgment needed to be taken care of. Right? That there need to be some sort of vengeance. This guy can't get away with that. I feel the sentiment of it. It is right and righteous for judgment to fall. We cheer it and we want it. But it needs to be done the right way. And if I was in that guy's shoes, I would have probably done that or worse and then expected to spend the rest of my life in jail. It's just me. I, I empathize with that. But can I tell you this for sure? That the judgment that this smirking serial killer should receive is what Jesus Christ drank. Now, you think your sins are just, well, not as bad as that guy's. But the smallest sin would make the biggest stain in eternity, and it cannot remain. The smallest sin is stronger than any known poison that would kill you instantly. That's the cup that Jesus drank. It is right and just wrath. God is not some big meanie in heaven just wanting to smack little people in the head. He is a righteous judge. You know, if that judge at that particular trial I was talking about, if he would have turned then and said, well, he was mean to you so you can go ahead and walk free. <laughs> yeah, that's not happening, is it? Because the judge needs to be righteous. Can I tell you who a righteous judge is? It is God. People in this life may, quote unquote, get away with murder and get away with doing injustice and unjust things to people. But, it, but, in, but in eternity, it isn't going to happen. Somebody's going to drink the cup. Wrath is a righteous response to evil. 
It must happen and it will happen. And the question really is, who's drinking it? Can I tell you somebody who did and drank it to the dreads? That is Jesus Christ. He demonstrates it here in this very narrative. A man who carried the sin of the world on his shoulders and drank every last drop of God's wrath. No wonder the Apostle Paul can write, there is therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus because Jesus paid it all. Let us pray. Father, we're thankful for Christ who indeed in the midst of an awful and dark day brought the light of his glory and bore our sin on his body on the tree who drank the cup of wrath due each one of us. I pray we would respond in great faith, trust, joy, and rejoicing in Christ Jesus even this day. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, you take a moment to think on these things. Take a moment now. See, I knew you'd help me out. 224, let's sing that together before we close. 224, is it? One of my favorite. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Let's sing it together as Jerry leads us. Let's just do the first line and um, we'll conclude with that. There is a fountain. Stand together.
Gracious Father, we pray that you would strengthen each and every one here with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. And may you give thanks to the Father who qualifies us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light forever. Father, we pray also that you would bless now as we go to the fellowship hall, Lord, and, and uh, to fellowship together and to uh, partake of the food which has been provided. Lord, we just pray that you would bless the fellowship and bless the food to our bodies and those who have made it. We ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.